Hello and welcome. You're listening to Outstanding in Their Field, an agriculture literacy discussion. This podcast is hosted by me, Will Fett, from the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation, and by Katie Carpenter of New York Agriculture in the Classroom. Throughout this season, we'll be joined by friends of Agriculture in the Classroom from across the country as we explore how agriculture meets some of our most basic needs of food, fiber, and fuel. We'll hear from educators who are creatively teaching and inspiring their students in food and agriculture. And we'll hear from industry experts showing the technology and science of modern agriculture and food production. As I said, my name is Will Fett, but today we have a special treat, and your guest host is Becky Sponholtz from Florida Agriculture in the Classroom. Today's episode comes all the way from sunny Florida. Becky, I'll turn it over to you to introduce your guests. So my name is Austin Spivey. I'm the production manager for a company called Cherry Lake, Inc., we are a diversified agribusiness. We operate a ornamental tree farm comprising of about 1,500 acres of production, everything from trees to palms to shrubs. We also operate a uh, commercial landscape construction and hardscape company. And one of our newest diversifications is in the uh, landscape maintenance business. I think we're rated as the largest ornamental tree producer in the Southeast United States and the second largest in the country. And you guys, every year, your farm is always so great about reading for Agriculture Literacy Day with our program. So we really appreciate that support. So what is your educational background or professional training? It's fairly unusual, but my professional training in education is a pre-law poli-sci. I got my degree from the University of Central Florida. My intentions were to go to law school. Obviously, that didn't happen, and that's mainly because I fell in love with the green industry. I was working for some landscape companies through college and then uh, after college, and I began to learn more and more and just became enamored with the science of growing, and I fell in love with it. And I decided I, I don't want to be in an office. I don't want to wear a suit. I want to be a farmer. And so here I am. Can you tell me, and I know you said what your current role is, but talk about what your current role is, what your responsibilities, and kind of like what is your typical day? Yeah, so I, I'm very blessed to have an incredible team under me. They handle most of the day-to-day operational stuff. You know, and my purpose here is just to support them, to identify things that I can do to help make their lives easier, make them better at their jobs and, and things of that nature. But under my umbrella, my scope is pretty much all the tasks that you might associate with the growing of our ornamental trees. So all the irrigation aspects, all of the pruning and tree maintenance, shrub maintenance aspects, all the fertility that goes into our growing practices and all of the horticultural applications of fungicides, pesticides, insecticides, herbicides, those sort of things. So pretty much everything regarding the growing of our inventory. And how long have you been with Cherry Lake? I've been here a little over seven years. And some people listening to this may not know when you say ornamental trees, what does that mean? And what are some of the most popular ornamental trees that we have here in the Southeast? Probably the most popular is Quercus virginiana, which is our southern live oak. Regarding ornamental trees, I, I know what we grow, and, and typically ornamental trees is anything that you would buy to plant in a landscape, something like that, for aesthetic value. 
we grow maples, elms, bald cypress, oaks, southern magnolias, a variety of holly species, crepe myrtles uh, is a big staple in the southeast United States. And then, of course, a lot of individual shrubs, a variety of palms, those sort of things. So in your current industry, what are some of the challenges happening right now? And as a whole, what is the industry doing to try to solve some of those challenges? Well, I think one of our biggest challenges is labor. We have a hard time finding people who want to be involved in agriculture. Finding the labor and the young professionals that are enthusiastic about this industry has been very difficult. In order to overcome that, you know, we've had to look outside the United States. There's a variety of labor programs that are available to producers like us through the federal government that allow us to bring in, you know, seasonal labor to offset our needs. Another uh, concern, it's always a concern, is sustainability. It's the use of our natural resources in a high level stewardship kind of a way. You know, water here where I'm located is a big deal. We have a thousand people a day or, or something to that effect that move to Florida every single day. And so, you know, some of our natural resources are consumed more and more and there's this tug of war that's going on. And so I can only speak for Cherry Lake, but we really focus on how do we utilize our resources more effectively, more sustainably, not just for the right now, but for the generations to come. A third challenge is uh, regulation. You know, regulatory rules and statutes and things like that, you know, are being created all the time. You know, that restricts some of the tools that we have and some of the things that we can do. And so there's always a challenge of finding new ways to do things with different tools or or creating new tools ourselves or things like that, you know, to try to continue to be successful and adapt and overcome. And you talked about sustainability, and I'm sure over the last even 10 years, but 20, 30, 40, 50 years, a technology has really changed in the industry. What are some of the biggest technology innovations that have happened? Just since I've been involved in the green industry, there's been tremendous strides in irrigation. And again, that goes back to our efficiency, using less water to produce more. And a lot of that technology comes into, you know, how we pump the water, how we distribute the water, how we measure the water in the soil. There's a ton of telemetry and data collection that goes on wirelessly in the field now. We can really tailor our water needs to exactly what is plant specific at any given moment. The other thing that we've adopted here at Cherry Lake, aside from some of that irrigation technology, has been the technology that's come out for these these pesticide applications. We have some equipment now that actually takes a 360 degree imagery of each and every tree as it passes at three to four miles an hour and pinpoints exactly where the product needs to be applied at exactly a specific rate. And this happens in an instant, essentially, and you have this, this LIDAR scan that's going on. And, and so for the operator, his role is to drive up and down the row and the technology does the rest. And we've seen substantial savings of chemical outputs. I mean, you know, 40% reductions. And that benefits, obviously, the bottom line, but that also benefits the environment, it benefits the end users. I mean, you know, the benefits are, can be spread all around. 
That is amazing. I had not heard of that way of, of scanning the trees yet, but in definitely agriculture, and I know all states, but Florida, especially with the Everglades and our algae blooms, agriculture has just taken the fall for a lot of things. So I think it's really important to that you talked about how water has changed, because I think that a lot of people think that agriculture just sprays water and lets it run off. And just the innovations with the irrigation and what you said with the pesticide and the even fertilizing have changed. That's really cool. You talked about labor and and seasons. And when I think of ornamental trees, I don't really think of a season. But do you guys have a season where you need more workers than other? Because it's not like strawberries where you harvest it now and through, you know, February. Yeah. Our type of ag production is very labor intensive. You know, I'm certainly not an expert on row crop, but I know that there's a lot more mechanizations and things like that, field production type equipment that some of the row crop people have that we don't. And so, you know, it's not uncommon to find one guy maintaining, you know, a thousand acres of corn all by himself uh, throughout a season. That's something that, you know, our labor is intensive. I mean, we average, you know, probably six to eight people per acre per month, you know, just from a maintenance labor standpoint. So with that in mind, you're correct. I mean, we really don't have a season, but one thing that we do have is we have a period of time from about uh, November to uh, February where the temperature kind of drops, the humidity goes down and some of our pest and disease pressure goes down. Uh, our trees, we do have uh, deciduous trees that, that will go fully dormant and then we have other trees that go dormant. So a lot of the function that our labor performs like uh, applications of horticultural products or the pruning or things like that. A lot of that stuff kind of dies down in the wintertime. And we would love to have a year round fully staffed team. But the reality is, is we haven't been able to achieve that through uh, hiring core staff locally. So if we were to have a downtime, it's usually over that winter period. And in the program that we use regulates that every 10 months here, they have to return home for two months. So that's kind of how we have developed that kind of seasonal uh, flow of labor. And I know we didn't actually talk about this at the beginning, but can you kind of explain where Cherry Lake is located in the state of Florida so they can kind of see in their heads where you're talking about temperature and winter and that kind of stuff? Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure your audience, but I'm sure they would laugh at our winters, some of them. Winter usually happens on a Tuesday in Florida. We are located, I'd say about 40 miles west of Orlando in this central Florida kind of region, just, just a little north northeast of Tampa. And you do get freezes in that area. I know we're located a little bit farther north, but I mean... It's rare. That's actually an interesting point. That's how we came to be because Cherry Lake is actually owned by IMG Citrus. And IMG Citrus is a, a rather large citrus producer in the state of Florida. They have a, approximately 9,000 acres of grove production. They have a packing house. They have a distribution cooler. They have uh, an import program uh, where they, they package and market fruit for uh, South American growers. Um, in the off season, they're owned by the same parent company as Cherry Lake. And so this site here actually was orange groves and it was the original orange groves owned by IMG Citrus and the freezes that occurred, I believe it was in 82 and 84. It might've been 82 and 85. I'm, I'm not sure I was, I was in diapers back then, but it devastated this, this mm -hmm. grove. And so the owner, uh, Michelle Salen, he was, um, he was looking for a way to diversify. 
And so he, he played with a lot of different ideas. You know, I've heard stories of aquaculture, different types of fruit production and, and ornamental trees was one of the options on the table. And that's what they ended up rolling with. And that's how Cherry Lake was born. And today, I mean, you know, we're, we're one of the, the more reputable growers in the, uh, in the industry. And it's interesting that you say that with the freeze. I don't necessarily remember the early 80s, but I think there was one in 89 too that I remember because I was in fifth grade that year. But, you know, people don't think about it that long ago and how citrus was so big and that freeze did a lot of damage. And now we have citrus greening. And because of citrus greening, I believe that's why peaches and olives have kind of come about bigger than they probably would have had we not had citrus greening that really affected the industry. And it's just... I think Florida, you talked about the diversity that we have, but we just have this like amazing resilience too to not let it necessarily get us down and we just figure out something else to do. So it's pretty neat to see. Florida has a horrible problem with invasive species. We're we're very surrounded by water. Therefore, we have a lot of shipping that comes in and therefore we have a lot of invasive species that can come in that way in other ways. Like I talked about with citrus greening in the citrus industry, are there any invasives that are really hurting the ornamental tree industry right now? Sure. I think Florida ranks number two in the United States in terms of new pest introductions on an annual basis. Uh, The only other state that gets more uh, exotic and invasive pests is Hawaii. That just goes to show you, you know, how much challenge we have. We have a lot of support from the industry and, and bulletins and things like that. You know, the giant apple snail is one. You know, the Q-type uh, white fly, bio-Q-type white fly is one. You know, we haven't had the Asian longhorn beetle yet, but we say a lot of yets for Florida because it's it's just a matter of time often with, with the way commerce is. But there are a number of pests out there that uh, that get introduced and nothing that's been as devastating as the HLB greening for the citrus industry. But sure, we get stuff all the time. I actually got an opportunity to go down to um, the port of Miami and I got to tour the APHIS, which is the regulatory uh, plant inspection governing agency. And so as these agricultural commodities come into the United States, you know, they pull aside, select supposedly at random and some targeted and they inspect these for new pest introduction. But, you know, the problem is, I mean, I think they said that maybe 1% of the shipments that come through there actually do they have an, op- an opportunity to inspect and fumigate and do things like that. So, you know, a lot of it's labor and staffing and just the sheer volume of stuff coming in. And, and so we're always on the lookout for that next, that next challenge, that next thing that's going to, you know, that's going to really be a thorn in our side. In the time that you have been in the industry, has there been an invasive species that has taken out a plant? There's been various diseases and things that the market has decided it's not worth the trouble. Red tip Photinia was a hedge that was that was very popular and it, it had some sort of disease that was uncontrollable, incurable. And, uh, and so the market kind of phased that out. I, I know there's some real threats right now to some of our staples like uh, the crepe myrtle, which anybody in Florida or the Southeast knows about those. But there's a really prolific um, soft scale called crepe myrtle bark scale that thankfully it's not in Florida yet. But it's gotten so bad that in places like Louisiana and and Mississippi and stuff like that, the market is not going to those trees anymore. And so eventually, I mean, a lot of our business is market driven. So as you get these pests that nursery producers can't control, eventually the market will phase them out organically. 
as an industry in whole, 30 years from now, what would you want to see our students, what skills or what knowledge would you like to see when they are graduating from high school? Yeah, for our particular business and, and our industry is it's it's a relatively smaller niche kind of industry, this this nursery. And so for that reason, we really don't have a lot of mechanization. What we do have is often what we've created ourselves. And so what I'd, I would love to see, and, and I think, you know, some of my colleagues here at Cherry Lake would agree is that, you know, we would really love to see more agricultural engineers, you know, more people uh, that are interested in agriculture, because, you know, we have some younger people on staff here and, and they're really fluent in the uh in the technology that is available, like the sprayer I'd indicated earlier that uses LiDAR and has a software package that's associated with it and, and Bluetooth and all kinds of things. And um, this particular individual is, is uh, really proficient in it, loves it. And that was one of the big attractors, our, our use of technology for him to come uh, right out of the University of Florida and come work for us. There's a lot of students that like to build and create and do all those sorts of things and like to see some of that interest intermingled with a passion for growing and for agriculture because you know, it goes back to the labor concern. It's it's hard to say whether or not these labor programs that we're utilizing are sustainable. And so really, if we want to be completely autonomous and control our own destiny, we need to figure out ways to be, you know, more mechanized, more efficient, uh, more labor efficient, for sure. That means technology. And with technology, you need people that can understand design and create technology. And so that's what I envision for the future workforce for agriculture. I think the University of Florida did a study that said something to the effect of, we have to produce twice as much food on this planet as we do now in the same amount of space to support our growing population. And that's alarming. Right, which could be why the question is worded 30 years from now and we're 2020, so that would be 2050. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 2050. So it's like, I mean, that's a not a small task. We have to grow twice the amount of food on potentially less acreage because mm -hmm. of, you know, urban rural encroachment and those sort of things. So the only way to do that is technology, efficiencies yeah. through technology. And so there's a huge opportunity. I mean, you know, technology doesn't just have to be, you know, YouTube and Tesla and those sort of things. It can be applied in every aspect of our lives for sure. Yeah, it is interesting to see some of the projects, some of the students. So we give out grants every year to programs, and some of them are high school programs. And there are some kids that are just designing some really neat things out there. So it, it is exciting to see what, what we come up with. And I don't know that anybody can go in it, but that greenhouse field of citrus trees that we now have in the state of Florida, that is just like, who would have guessed that we would have had a citrus farm inside a greenhouse. It is exciting to see what's going to happen and the things that we come up with. All right. So the last two questions I have for you is, so what is the best part about your job? Oh, I was hoping you would ask this. I would say hands down, probably, and not just my job, but this industry as a whole is the people that I get to interact with on a daily basis. You know, I came from the landscape industry which is a, it's similar, but different. And then when I transitioned into the, the agricultural growing side of horticulture, I was exposed to a whole different uh, environment of, of people 
and man, I, I just have fallen in love with the people that I get to deal with. Uh, the people affiliated with ag are so wonderful to work with. And, and I, I just, I love this industry now and I can't really see myself doing anything but this because the people are what make it so wonderful. I definitely agree with you with that. I've been with Ag in the Classroom since 2013, but before that I was an agriculture teacher, but I have yet to to meet anybody in the agriculture industry in Florida that haven't been just gracious of, of time and support and always willing to let us come in and ask a million questions like I'm doing today. And we, we ask some interesting questions just because it's so fascinating and it nothing is the same. We have an amazing industry that it's, it's definitely a privilege to be part of. So the question that you may not want to answer is what is the worst part of your job? Probably the worst part of my job, I would say, is the regulatory side. There's a tremendous amount of regulations and scrutiny that we're under, you know, and some of it makes sense and some of it doesn't to me at least. And, um, and, but there's a, there's a lot of documentation and a lot of follow-up and things like that. And so, you know, oftentimes there's a lot of hoops that we have to jump through on a daily basis and things like that. And so sometimes I get bogged down in those things and, um, rather than, you know, what seems to me to be less productive being out there in the field where I enjoy my work, you know, sometimes I'm stuck here in the office doing paperwork and doing things like that. And, um, you know, it kind of comes with the territory. I mean, I think that's why they call it work, right? Mm -hmm. Because you always have some good and bad, but I got to tell you, if that's the worst thing that happens to me, I am so blessed. Woe is me. I have to fill out a little paperwork here and there, you know, I mean, honestly, like it's really hard to find the worst thing, but I guess that that would be it. So thank you for for taking the time to talk to us today about your program and why you do what you do. John is part of a team of teachers that won the Florida and National Excellence in Teaching About Agriculture Award for the amazing job they do at Millennial Gardens Elementary School in Orlando, Florida. So we're going to kind of start with how you got into education, where you went to school, what is your degree in, if you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I went to college in Memphis and my original major my only major was uh, like a religion major. And after working in kind of religious work for a while, I did a lot of different jobs like sales. But I moved to Orlando about eight years ago just because I wanted to have certain time with my family. I was interested in going into teaching. And the teachers in my life begged me not to go into teaching because it's a very difficult profession. And they warned me how difficult it would be and how political it's gotten. And uh, they were right about a lot of that, but I got into teaching because I wanted a job where I was making a difference in people's lives, uh, a job that mattered. And I was really super glad that I was able to start teaching at a Title I school four years ago. So this is my fifth year teaching. And I love teaching in Title I schools. I love teaching knowing that I am able to provide opportunities to students that wouldn't have them otherwise. Nothing wrong with teaching in a school where there's more advantages and more parental involvement. But I just know that for the students I get to work with, they're not on third base. There's a lot of challenges in their life. And I get to bring them experiences that uh, no other kids are having in Orange County, Florida, and maybe in the state of Florida. And so for me, it's very fun and fulfilling to be in this school environment and providing these types of opportunities. 
So when you say you're a Title I school, so I've had the opportunity to see what where your school is located. Just give everyone a little bit of an example of like what is right next to your school. Right next to our school is a shopping center. Literally next door to our school is a Culver's where it's like a fast food restaurant. Down the street's a shopping mall, one of the big shopping malls in Orlando. On the other side of us is an apartment complex. And Title I just means that our kids fall below a certain level of, of socioeconomics, which entitles all of our students to free lunch. As a whole, as a unit, our school is kind of economically disadvantaged, each student to varying degrees. But yeah, we're, we're a suburban school, like in the middle of a city. Yeah, it's so interesting to see the program. And, and when I first got to see all the photos and I kept seeing the big buildings in the background in the apartment complex, it was just, it was really amazing. And so this year you're teaching third grade, is that correct? I am. I'm teaching third grade and I have been teaching third grade. This is my fourth year to teach third grade. And why do you like third grade? You know, I love third grade because it's the first year of standardized testing. And there's this challenge that I have to get these third graders ready for the FSA, which is the Florida Standardized Something Assessment. It's the first year in Florida that they can actually be held back if they get a poor score on that test. So I'm getting kids oftentimes that are a grade or two grade levels or three grade levels behind. And so the challenge is I, I have basically six months to try to get them caught up. It's difficult, but I like the challenge. I like to take that challenge on and see how many of my students I can get caught up and prepare them for the FSA. And, and some of my students that are like on grade level, my challenge for those kids is like, let's maximize your potential. Can you get a high score on the FSA? So I want to like try to maximize each of my students' potential in that way. That's why I love third grade. So I know you are part of a team of teachers that has an eco club after school at your school. So tell us a little bit about what that program is and what you do and why you started it. Sure. So my first year teaching, I was at a different school, a school called Tangelo Park Elementary. And I came to Millennia Gardens for a training. And in the room where we had this training, up on the wall, there was these posters and they were tracking their energy usage in the school. And I was like, what the heck is this? Like who's tracking energy usage and, and using it to make graphs, which is a third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade standard in math. Like who's talking to kids about this stuff? And I come to find out later on when I came over here, that was Eco Club. So my first exposure to Eco Club was seeing this data on the wall and being so impressed with it. And I kind of come from a sales and business background. And the thing I loved about what Eco Club was doing was they were tying being good stewards of the environment, recycling, not throwing away things in the trash that we could recycle. And they were tying that to business. Like they were showing how they were saving money because it costs more to get trash pickups in the dumpster than it does for recycling pickups. So for me, it was like the full picture of why we need to teach recycling and things like this. Like recycling is only half the picture. It's the stewardship of also finances and how we can save money and reutilize those dollars for other things at our school, much more exciting than trash pickup. And so when I got to the school and met those teachers, I quickly kind of fell in with them and had a lot of the same kind of educational outlook or perspectives. And the thing that I loved about the teachers that started Eco Club, and just so you know, so I came a year after I got started. It was true educational entrepreneurship. They were creating something that did not exist anywhere. And the reason they created it was they were like, these students we're getting are needing so much. Like there are so many gaps in their education. 
a lot of the students were coming from other countries and they just wanted to address these needs in creative ways. And so what they decided to do is to create this eco club where they would teach kids about recycling and stewardship and growing produce and how to cook the healthy foods. So it became this huge program. Uh, and I got to be part of it starting the second year where we get to provide these unbelievable opportunities to kids in an urban environment that wouldn't be able to experience these types of things otherwise. And it was during the first year of Eco Club before I arrived on the scene that they started a hydroponic garden. So it's 50 towers. Again, it can grow a thousand heads of lettuce at a time. And so one of the very first things that Eco Club did that kind of gained some uh, local attention and actually some national attention too was they had all this lettuce that they grew. And like, what the heck do we do with a thousand heads of lettuce? And through one of our connections at UF IFAS, it's the University of Florida, kind of their food and nutrition, agriculture program, educational program. They said, hey, go talk to SeaWorld. SeaWorld's, you know, 15 minutes down the road from us. And literally my friends in Eco Club, these innovators, they bugged SeaWorld to come out and check out their lettuce. And when I say bugged, it means like they had to contact SeaWorld 20, 30, 40 times before SeaWorld finally came out, mainly to like, okay, let's go to this little school and look at their little garden. So they'll leave us alone. So SeaWorld comes out and they see all that these students have done and they're blown away. Like, oh my gosh, we had no idea. Like we're thinking like a little small, you know, eight by eight garden that you're so proud of. They're like, no, this is like a commercial garden. And they had our lettuce tested. And it graded out at the highest level because they only feed top level produce to their manatees. So we started to donate our lettuce to the manatees. And then you think about the agricultural business side. What we had our students do with SeaWorld is like we made them grow lettuce to basically earn an overnight field trip at SeaWorld. Now, SeaWorld said, we're going to give this to you. We want you to come out and we want to start a partnership with Eco Club in your school. But the way we set it up with the kids is like, guys, you have to grow this lettuce. And we kind of did the math. You have to grow so much lettuce to earn your spot on this trip. So there was like a real economic tie-in. This is the business of growing produce and basically selling it to SeaWorld. And they're going to give us back this trip. You know, this is a great example. Uh, a lot of the students, even though they live 15 minutes from SeaWorld, had never been to SeaWorld. And of course, those who had been to SeaWorld had never spent the night at SeaWorld. And so it's just a great example of one of the many things we've gotten to do with students, providing opportunities through creative partnerships, through agriculture. And of course, I mean, you just think about all that's being learned in that process. The students are planting the seed. They're watching it grow. They're harvesting it. They're seeing that it got tested to see that it was the highest level and, and free of of pesticides and herbicides that SeaWorld wouldn't let their manatees eat. And they're seeing the economic benefit of basically being, you know, small time farmers and that we can grow this and that people are willing to basically take our produce and give us something in return. So it's phenomenal. Just the background knowledge that those students now have that they would not have otherwise, except through this program through Eco Club. And it's just amazing that it's the Eco Club, the main part that's doing all this work is third through fifth grade students, correct? Yes. And so like, I think it was the first two or three years, it was just third, fourth, and fifth students. And then we expanded to now we have a first and second grade program. And all of our programs, we align with the science and math standards for the grade level. And then just last year, we launched our first middle school Eco Club program. One of the things we tried to do at our elementary campus for years and couldn't get done, just got done at our middle school, Eco Club Middle School Campus, which is West Ridge Middle School down the road. They have bees there. And they're going to train middle school students to be certified beekeepers. Like we have pictures of like middle school students in full bee suits, like with the smoke and they're harvesting honey 
and they're tending to the bees. It's phenomenal. So the Eco Club is an after school program. So how many students did you start with in year one? And how many students are you guys up to now in year, I guess you said five? Yeah. So like the first year, there was about 50 students total. So one of the, the benefits of having Eco Club and it going so well in the middle school last year is that the teacher who went over there, his name is Josh Garrett, he was given two environmental science classes. So basically, he's running Eco Club now through those two classes and basically having a full hour each day to be teaching all the same things he would have taught in Eco Club. Like he's been handed classes because they saw the educational benefit to what he was doing through Eco Club and how excited the kids were. So when you kind of think about those two classes, you know, that's about 50 kids there. And then in our campus, about 80 kids, you're looking at about 130 kids first through eighth grade now that are part of what we do in Eco Club. That's awesome. And so trying to just kind of get another grasp here in Florida, we have 67 counties. All all the school districts do the after school programs a little bit different. My kids are here in Alachua County. And so we have what they call EDEP. It's extended day enrichment program. And so during that few hours after school, they don't really have this kind of thing. Is that how after school programs work at your school? Or do you have other clubs like this and students just chose that club? There was other things going on here, but none of them were kind of as exciting as what we were doing at Eco Club. We have a lot of partnerships, and one of them is with you know OCPS and the department that handles grounds and buildings because we're always building something or having to get something a, a new permit. And so the, a new lady got over our area, and she came out, and she's like, "How do you get kids to come outside and do work in gardens?" And we just laughed. We we're like, "You need to come see it." Like the kids fight over the shovels. Like they want to be the one that gets to do the work, that gets to do the digging, or they might not be as excited about the weeding. But uh, as far as the planning and and the work goes, like the kids are excited to do that. And just think in this urban environment, I get to be a teacher that Mm -hmm. puts a shovel in a kid's hand. They've never seen anybody use a shovel before. They've never used a shovel before. And it's stuff that a lot of people in our more rural environments, you know, kind of in farmland, you grew up around it. Well, my students don't grow up around it. They don't know how to use a shovel. Mm -hmm. I get to be the teacher that shows a kid how to use a shovel. And there's something just so fulfilling about I get to be that guy. And they get to be so proud that they use a shovel. When we build our, our gardens, the frames for our gardens, I teach kids how to use power tools, drills, and saws. When we go out back to our garden area, I always joke and say that one of our values is that like it's perfectly imperfect. There's not a uh, right angle anywhere to be found because a kid built this and it was his first time to ever cut and use a drill. Like It's not perfect, but we love the fact that kids, we put the tools in their hands and get to provide this experience for them. It's better than perfect, right? Like it's perfectly mm-hmm. imperfect. I'm still a little bit surprised that no one told us we can't do that. But <laughs> until they tell us we can't do that, we, we still use a lot of safety protocols. We go very slow, but we want kids to have those experiences. So with all the teachers that are involved in Eco Club, they're all different grade level teachers. Yeah. How do you guys incorporate what you're doing after school into your actual classroom. So in third grade, what what are you doing with what you've grown with the Eco Club to incorporate that into your classroom? We have a partnership with Everglades Foundation. And so one of the things we do throughout the whole school is we do education about the Everglades and uh, what's going on down there and why it's important to keep our water clean. And the headwaters of the Everglades starts about a mile from our school. So like even what we do in Central Florida affects the water down at Everglades. 
a lot of our, our teachers got trained in the Everglades Foundation training. And so we provide the curriculum to all grade levels in our school that's tied to our science standards to do uh, teaching about the Everglades, teaching about the habitats that are affected when there's not enough water or enough clean water flowing through the Everglades, all the different species of animals that are down there. So that's one of the things we do. But one of the things we do in third grade specifically and started doing a lot more of this last year during the pandemic, we started teaching kids how to cook over Zoom. Like one of the, one of the ways to keep our kids engaged was teaching them cooking. And even this year in our math standards, we just recently taught kids how to make cookies from scratch, like with flour and sugar. And so we're using measuring standards and measuring cups when they arrange their cookies on their cookie sheet. It's like an array model that helps them teach, you know, learn multiplication. So one, it's just fun and it keeps them engaged, but we can tie it back to, you know, where do you think the sugar comes from? Where do you think this flour comes from? You know, it doesn't just come from the grocery store. Like a farmer had to, you know, harvest this and produce this before it ever got to the grocery store. So we can have those kind of conversations and help them understand a little more about agriculture, how the food supply chain works. And so we're always looking for ways to kind of be innovative, great learning opportunities that are fun and very engaging for our students. So you talked earlier about the standardized tests in Florida, the FSA, starting in Mm -hmm. third grade. Do you feel that having this hands-on, real-world component added to your students in your classroom and the students after school, do you see a tie to those those students' scores and does it increase? Yeah, so one of the things we did when EcoClub started, it started with a state farm grant of about $70,000. And for the majority of our time for EcoClub, our funding came through grants. And so with many of these grants, like the State Farm Grant, the people that give us money want to see, you know, what is the return on our investment? So one of the things we've done a really good job of over the last few years is we track the data, kind of compare our students at Eco Club and how they're performing on the standardized tests and their school attendance compared to the general population of our school. When we let students into Eco Club, it's a very diverse club. Every year, the students in our club are outperforming our school by anywhere from 20 to 30 percent higher scores on FSA, higher in uh, school attendance. And it's something we kind of pride ourselves in that kids who are part of our program are excited about coming to school. We talk at the end of the year, like we have higher expectations for you from a behavior standpoint, from an academic standpoint, and coupled with what they're being exposed to, all this prior, you know, all this background knowledge they're getting in science and in math through Eco Club, and we're seeing that it's making a direct impact on how they're scoring in their tests. That's awesome. So Florida Agriculture in the Classroom, we give out school garden grants every year. And I love reading how attendance rates have just gone up and behavior is so much better. And it's great on our end to see what these students are doing and how the teachers are working with the students. And I know there's a lot of teachers out there that are just, it's a little overwhelming to start this type of hands-on experiential learning kind of program. But what would you say to a teacher? teacher that hasn't started it, but is thinking about it and and why it's so beneficial? That's a great question. You know, we do get asked a lot about how did you start this thing? Because when people get exposed to it, it's awesome. And I I get to really brag on it even more because I didn't start it. I kind of came on later on. As we've gained momentum over the years, more and more people want to get involved. We found funding other places. When you look at all that we're doing, you know, we took kids to camp in the Everglades the last two years, the first school in Orange County to do that. So it is a little overwhelming when folks come and say, you know, how do you start? So we've really kind of thought through that a lot. What I would tell people is like, 
just start small. Like don't try to do what we do. We didn't get here overnight. First, it'd be start small. Like if you just get a few kids together, even if it's 10 kids, and you guys really kind of put a recycling program together at your school, that's amazing. Most schools don't have that. You have that same group of kids, pay attention to your energy usage and, and put together a program where you're encouraging students to make sure the water is turned off and the lights are turned off. That's amazing. If you have a garden at your school where you grow any vegetables and the kids get to pick it and eat it, that's amazing. So like, just do some recycling, you know, make a garden. And there's, like you said, like a Florida guy in the classroom gives out grants every year. There's, there are resources if you want to do these types of things. And a lot of times principals also have money that they can give to these types of initiatives. So if you're doing a little recycling, a little garden, just to start off, like you're already like in the top 1% of schools. Mm-hmm. That's how I look mm-hmm. at it. It's like, don't feel like you've got to get to where we are or somebody else is like, just go make a difference in your school. Now, the second thing I would say, besides start small, is find one or two other teachers that care about this stuff. It is really hard to start a program or create a program when it's just you. It's a lot of work. It's extra work, right? And we're already kind of, as teachers at times, feeling overworked, especially in these days where education has, has changed so much in the last you know, six to eight months. But uh, don't try to do it alone. Like find that other teacher or two that shares your vision for like environmental education or for agriculture education and partner with them and share the workload. Eco Club would not be where it is today if it wasn't for a team of teachers that started this. There was four original teachers, three of which are still around in Eco Club. From day one, it was a team. The team worked together to create the grant. And then when the grant was given, the team worked together to put in place what the grant had spelled out, which was Eco Club. And so those are kind of the two things is like start small and find some people to do it with the people that you like, because you're going to end up spending a lot of time with them in a garden or uh, after school working with kids. So you talked about the thousand heads of lettuce that you guys grow hydroponically. How many raised beds where you grow fruits and vegetables do you guys have? And we built those first raised beds. We had six and the idea was to let each grade level have their own in different years, that's worked better and some years, not so much. We have another garden called a culture garden. It's also a raised bed. And this is pretty cool. So like I said before, a lot of our students are coming from different countries. This year, I'm teaching math and science. I'm exposed to about 60 kids. And I think there were 17 different countries out of those 60 kids where either they were born in a different country or their parents were born in that other country. So one of our gardens we created was a culture garden. The idea is let's grow in this garden vegetables and herbs that are used in the native dishes from the countries our kids are coming from. And it would become a connecting point to these families, many of which are very new to our country, where they could come in, they could also pick from the garden, they could have their kids excited about it. And so it's a way to connect them to a new culture, a new school, and that's the culture gardens. We're very proud of that one. We have another butterfly garden. And you know, next to the butterfly garden, we have uh, Mr. Garrett painted this this beautiful mural about the life cycle of the butterfly, which is one of the standards. I think it's a first or second grade standard. You know, we can teach the kids about pollinators. And so that's a separate garden. And it's also a Pulse Memorial Garden. Like uh, about two months before our school opened, it was when the Pulse shooting happened in Orlando. So it's a butterfly garden and a Pulse Memorial Garden where each victim of the Pulse shooting had their name on a, uh, written on a rock. And those rocks are still out there. We have a wildlife sanctuary out back where it's, it can't be mowed down. And we've got it certified through a lot of different organizations. And we actually have a lot of wildlife back there. Uh, ducks laying eggs in there. and all, It's all kinds of stuff. In each of those, of those raised beds, a teacher could come out and 
you know, plant different vegetables with their students. They can come monitor the growth. They can measure it. They can plant like in array models. They can use them to teach area and perimeter, have the kids measure it. And so there's all these different standards that can be taught just through one raised bed. Like earlier, we talked about how do you start a program like this? Having one garden, there's so many math standards and science standards that can be taught through just one small raised bed garden. sure to follow our podcast on Instagram at Outstanding in Their Field Podcast, our website, and our Facebook page. For more information on the Agriculture in the Classroom programs in your local area, visit agclassroom.org. Remember to subscribe to Outstanding in Their Field on your favorite podcast streaming service, and visit the show notes to learn more. For now, thanks for listening, and stay tuned for next time when we hear from more folks who are outstanding in their field. <music>